Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Ellen Hendrickson on the podcast. Dr. Hendrickson is a clinical psychologist who helps millions calm their anxiety and be their authentic selves through her award-winning Savvy Psychologist podcast, which has been downloaded over 5 million times and at Boston University's Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders. Her latest book is called How to Be Yourself. Quiet your inner critic and rise above social anxiety. Hi, Ellen. How's it going? Really well. Thanks for talking with me. Oh, thanks for talking to me. Sure. Love your book. And I love the title of the book, How to Be Yourself. You know, there's like, it's very hotly debated in psychology what yourself is. First of all, you know, what that word even means. And I like how you define it. So maybe you could do that for the audience a little bit. What does it mean to find yourself? How do you know when you found that? Sure. So without getting too much into like philosophy or like deep existential definitions. So the way I define it for the purposes of the book and for social anxiety is that yourself is the self you are without fear. So, you know, we we all feel comfortable around the people we love or our closest friends or even just when we're in blissful solitude. And so for folks who get socially anxious, it's often around, you know, people like authority figures or strangers. And so Again, for this book, the definition of yourself is the self you are without fear when you're feeling comfortable. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Because like humanistic psychologists and all the, you know, Carl Rogers and everyone, they're really interested in authenticity. And they kind of talked about that real self as being that real live center within yourself Mm -hmm. that Karen Horney uh, talked about as well. Like, So that's really what this is about in a lot of ways is finding that spontaneous creative center within yourself and not being scared of it. Right, right. 
the self that you are like without, you know, we've all had that moment where we're, if we're in a you know socially anxious situation, we tend to turn inward. We tend to start monitoring our thoughts and think like, oh, like, why did I just say that? Oh, I sounded like an idiot or, oh gosh, I hope I didn't offend them. Or like, does my hair look weird? Or, oh, he just like looked the other way. I wonder if he's looking for an escape route. <laughs> and so it's the self we can be when we're turned outward, when we're engaging with the world and not monitoring ourself and our performance. Yeah, I like this quote, social anxiety is self-consciousness on steroids. You right, know. right. Yeah, so it's exactly. not just it's not just run the mill self-consciousness, but you know, if you reach a level of social anxiety, you really are you need to regulate that a little better within yourself. Yeah. I'm fascinated with individual differences and individual differences in this trait. So not everyone is self-conscious, you know, and right. and you can have the other extreme, you can have grandiose narcissism where like there are some people in this world where I don't think they really are that self-conscious about what oh, what I just said, I hope it didn't hurt someone's feelings. You know, like, so what's really interesting for me in reading your book is like, you know, you want to help people get from like maybe negative seven to what? Mm -hmm. To two? You don't, you don't want sure. them, like, it's an interesting it's question. Right, yeah. right, right. I mean, it's just, I think it's an interesting question. Like, what is the goal? Like, when do you feel like with your patients, you know, it's like, you know what? I really think that you've reached a point where this doesn't need to be a concern for you anymore because you know, I personally, and I would love to see what you think of this, I personally am of the belief that self-consciousness and self-esteem, that's like a deprivation drive. Mm -hmm. It's not a growth drive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the goal there is actually getting to the point where that's not even a need for you anymore, you know? Right. And then you can really focus on the real things that help you grow, like, you know, love and exploration mm -hmm. and all these other things. So yeah, it's just it's something to think about, like, is, you know, what's the optimal sort of point? Yeah. So it's it's interesting because it's funny you bring up like raging narcissism and whatnot, because yeah. there have been studies to show like what is the opposite of social anxiety? Like if you turn social anxiety inside right. out, like a lot of people think, oh, well, and also a lot of people who have social anxiety think, oh, I wish I could just turn this around. I wish I could just be confident. Like they think confidence or like more confidence is the opposite of social anxiety. But really, according to brain scan studies, psychopathy is the opposite of social anxiety yeah. in that there's this fearless dominance or this uh, kind of entitled narcissism. And so we're definitely not aiming for that. Like you said, we don't want to go from negative two or even negative seven all the way up to 10. We want to kind of inch it up the scale. And also, I think inching it up the scale is great because as we lose our social anxiety, we don't lose the things that often come along as a package deal with that social anxiety. Like a lot of the people that I work with in my office who have social anxiety come in and are also very conscientious. They care about other people. They have a lovely openness to them. They're quite agreeable, but they're scared and self-conscious. And so as they work on that and face their fears, all those good traits don't go away, which is so great. And so it's, it's really, really neat to see them grow into themselves and be able to realize how great they are because that's when they come in. Well, I mean, this can get into the definition of social anxiety, which is a lot of people think it's like a fear of embarrassment. That's really more like a consequence to the fear coming true. So there's this the wonderful professor um, at the University of Waterloo, Dr. David Moscovich, who talks about the core fear of social anxiety being a deficit, a perceived deficit, I want to emphasize perceived, yeah, yeah. will be revealed and will become obvious to everyone. And so as a result, we try to hide, we try to conceal whatever we think is wrong with us, whether that's we're awkward or we're socially incompetent or we're boring or we're not funny, just any of a zillion perceived flaws. And so 
he says that that is what social anxiety is. It's that urge to cover that perceived flaw. And so if we can help people realize that is exactly that is a perception is actually a distortion, then that really sets them free and can help them inch along that scale. Yeah. You say that this book will help related to that. You say this book will help you feel comfortable when you're caught being yourself. Now that's a really, that's really clever. (laughs) That's a really clever phrasing. You know, that really encapsulates a lot of what you're saying because when you're caught, that means you're not being self-conscious about mm-hmm. of who you really are right. because you're being yourself, you know, and it's like, right, right. yeah, it's not some performative aspect, aspect yeah. to it. Yeah. I really like that. You also say nothing is wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's an interesting question, but I mean, there's some patients mm-hmm. where I, I don't think that's true. I mean, there's something wrong with you. Sure. you know, like, sure, like, sure. Like, I like to be honest, you know, with people, yeah, course, you know, so if you have high social anxiety, I mean, that's what's wrong with you, you know, like, right. but there's nothing wrong with the alive unique best self within you that needs wants to be expressed, right? Is that what you're saying? Well, and, yeah. and the fear. So when I say nothing is wrong with you, because social anxiety is, there's a perceived fatal flaw. Like people think that there's something like deeply wrong with them oh, that they I have see. to conceal. But really that thing that they're afraid of is something that either doesn't exist or exists to such a small extent that nobody oh, really cares. I see. Like that we're all human. We're all boring at times. We all strip over our words. We all, you know, don't speak in eloquent full paragraphs. You right. know? And so right. and so I think the folks with social anxiety often think that they are deficient because of like these, you know, these perceived problems. But that really we're just human. It's just the foibles of and the blemishes of being a person. And so that is what I mean by nothing is wrong with you. Thank you. That was really helpful. And you had me thinking of the amazing work of Kristen Neff on self-compassion mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how one of her facets of self-compassion is sort of like a common humanity or yes, and kind of recognizing that. And so it seems like maybe with a lot of individuals who are having social anxiety, high social anxiety, that maybe some self-compassion exercises, meditations, things would be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, Dr. Neff was kind enough to, to comment for the book. Yeah. And, uh, and she, she talked about how, you know, we're all in this together and, you know, we're all on this kind of long, awkward journey <laughs> together. Oh yeah. And absolutely. And, uh, and so that I, I like to tell my clients that, you know, if there's ever an embarrassing moment you have, like, I can guarantee that millions of other people have had that same embarrassing moment. Even if you feel like you're the only one, you're, you're definitely not alone. So yes, Dr. Neff is definitely onto something with that. <laughs> For sure. And then let's talk about the difference between like introversion and shyness, because mm. a lot of people conflate those two things. And you see it conflated in the uh, communities online of introversion, like um, Susan Cain's has a huge following. And mm-hmm. so you, you get all sorts of different types of introverts. I mean, you see, right. so to be introverted doesn't mean that you are necessarily having social anxiety that or there's something wrong with you if you are not as interested in socializing with lots of new people as maybe other people are right right exactly so introversion and extroversion is more about where you get your energy so extroverts recharge by being around people they recharge by talking to others and interacting and being in groups and introverts often recharge by being alone or one-on-one or with like a small group of people that they trust and so that's, again, that's more about energy, whereas social anxiety, which just, you know, the everyday way of saying socially anxious is to say shy. So those are really the same thing. That's about fear. And that's about, again, wanting to conceal a perceived flaw. And so you can be a socially anxious extrovert. Like I, a person I like to talk about as an example is someone I met who is both a teacher and a stand-up comedian. And so this gentleman, 
loves being in front of crowds, like loves getting the energy of being at a microphone or being in front of a group, but he's simultaneously afraid that nobody wants him there and that they're all judging him. And so he is a great example of somebody who is, who is socially anxious, but also really extroverted. And then I think people often conflate introversion and social anxiety because it is fairly common to see folks who are both, who you know get their energy by recharging and being being alone or in smaller groups, but are also have this fear of social situations, which could be generalized or could be very, very specific. Absolutely. My friend Jennifer Grimes, for her master's thesis, she went behind the scenes backstage after Ozfest with the, you know, the heavy metal musicians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she took them aside and she specifically her research was on introversion and highly sensitive people mm, traits, mm-hmm. highly highly sensitive traits. And she found a very high proportion of highly sensitive traits amongst the uh, rockers and backstage back and I'll send you the article about this. I think you yeah, might yeah, yeah, well, her research. That. She found that backstage so many of them this is literally they just performed on the loudest they would say things like, oh, I really can't stand loud noises. <laughs> and they literally, they would say this after they just performed. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But say that's a way of, for them, if they can control it, as long as it's not yeah. spontaneous, then it's okay. Yeah. But if, when they're on stage, they're in control of it. And that was different to them for some reason. Then, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I've met a lot of both introverts and socially anxious folks who say if they have a role, and I talk about this in the book as well, if they have some structure and a role to play, that takes away uncertainty. And uncertainty is what drives anxiety. And so if they know what to do, like they can play the kind of persona of this heavy metal rocker or you know, whatever it is they're supposed to do, that is much more comforting. And so structure here, like in, in, in the book, I talk about this wonderful study by um, the Australian researchers, doctors, Simon Thompson and Ron Rapay. And so they had a study where they compared women who had social anxiety, and then women who were like on the above average, confident, chatty. And they took these two groups of women and one at a time sent them into this experiment that, unbeknownst to them, started as soon as they stepped in the waiting room. Because this male research assistant would come in the room and sit down and just say, hope we don't have to wait too long. He was pretending to be another participant. And then he would just roll with whatever conversation came up. And if they talked, that was great. And if not, every 30 seconds, he prompted them again with like another, you know, just quip or, you know, comment. And they saw what kind of, you know, social interaction ensued. All right. So that was for five minutes. And then after that five minute chunk, a researcher came in and said, okay, thank you guys for coming. You know, so glad you're here. Here's our experiment. In the next five minutes, and are getting to know each other as well as you can in five minutes. Go. And so now these women had some structure. They had a role to play. They had, you know, they, they knew what they were supposed to do, had a purpose. So after the whole study was over, they had raters view videotapes of the interactions and rate the women on their social competence. And so in the first five minutes, when it totally unstructured, naturally the women with social anxiety rated quite a bit lower than the kind of overly, not overly, but confidently chatty women. But in the second five minutes, when they had a mission, they were almost neck and neck. And I like to stress that the folks with social anxiety, again, did almost as well as the people who were above average in terms of their confidence and ability to just chat with a stranger. So that really struck me and has really stayed with me in terms of just, you know, giving both both helping my clients. But also for me, you know, like I, I use, I like to say that I'm not, not only the author of How to Be Yourself, I'm also a client 
you know, it's like the hair club for men from the eighties. And so like, I, I use all these techniques when I go to a holiday party, I'll think like, okay, I'm going to try to talk to three new people or, you know, just, I give myself a little mission and that makes things so much easier. Oh gosh. I love that so much. Yeah. You talk about in your book about research is me search and uh, no, I love that. I'm a client too, you know, like I would not want to propose any sort of exercises for people that I haven't tried myself. Sure. Yeah. Based on that that study you're just talking about, my mind is uh, brimming with like 47 different directions to go in right now. And I want to just like commit to one right now. So I'll do that. Sure. Are you familiar with the recent research on the genetics of what are called orchid dandelion, orchid dandelion yes. hypothesis? I, I yeah. know the orchid dandelion yeah. hypothesis. I don't know if I know yeah. the genetics, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So what I find so interesting about that research is that you can find particular genes that under particular environmental conditions lead to high anxiety, but which those same genes under um, supportive conditions lead to higher levels of exploration than anyone else uh, that doesn't have oh, that gene. Yeah. Oh, cool. So I think that relates a little bit to the study that you just described. It matters so much for people, you know, the context matters and the framing of what your trade is matters because people who have this, have these genetics have a heightened vigilance, but if you actually convert that vigilance to like curiosity, it actually mm-hmm. can lead to great creativity. It can lead to right a absolutely. lot of a lot of great things in life. Right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. no, absolutely. Because I think yeah, under the right conditions, I think because yeah. we okay. So we're all we're all born. Let's just take anxiety. So we're all born with you know some greater or smaller tendency to be anxious. We all have like the raw Play-Doh, you know, of yeah. of like being anxious about something to a, to a degree. But then our experiences really shaped that Plato into whatever it's going to look like. And so if we're born with a larger tendency to be anxious, then our experiences are going to mold that into either, you know, a tendency or to mold it either to into social anxiety or, you know, perhaps, you know, generalized anxiety or OCD or, or whatever. Yeah. But I think that also our experiences can mold it the other way into the, yeah, the flip side of those things or both. You know, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Totally does not have to be. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, going back to just Aaron's, uh, Lean Aaron's concept of the highly sensitive person, from a mm-hmm. personality perspective, I find her, that's, her scale is almost perfectly correlated with neuroticism. Mm. So that's, I think that's a lot of the trait dimension we're talking about here when we're talking about the, what you're talking about in your book stems from neuroticism domain of personality. But I do also find it very interesting. There is this consistent correlation that pops up in all my data sets between neuroticism and openness to experience Mm. and artistic interests and sort of like beauty, like appreciation of beauty. And and some of those items are even on a lean scale, which is why she found that it's a coherent scale. So I think that's an interesting, interesting correlation that, you know, I'm just trying to wrap my head around sort of what's driving that commonality, but it's... Sure. Uh, yeah. I guess my riff on that would be it's a tendency to feel deeply, and whether that's mm. a tendency to yes. feel negative emotions deeply, negative experiences deeply, or to feel deeply when it comes to the awe of standing yeah. on the edge of the Grand Canyon or the wave of emotion you get when you stand in front of a great piece of art. You feel everything deeply. I think you nailed it. That is what it is. You know, my dissertation was trying to break up the openness to experience domain into its components. Mm. One of my components was a what I called effective openness, openness mm. to both the positive and negative emotions within yourself. That's different than neuroticism, but it was actually an aspect sure. of openness. Okay. And that was correlated with all those other forms of openness as well, you know, as well as compassion. Yes. Yeah, so great stuff. Great stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I love, I mean, people with social anxiety are my favorite clients. I'm a generalist and I, I work with everybody, but sure. the folks with social anxiety are near and dear to my heart because they're often just wonderful people. They are compassionate and they are, you know, open to experiences and again, care deeply about others. So it's, you know, it's a nice bunch to work with and it's especially great to help them realize that about themselves. Are they more fun to work with than your grandiose narcissistic patients? <laughs> <laughs> so it's they're easier i have a better time with the internalizers i do have to admit yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's easier to work with the, the the people who are depressed and anxious than than the those who are acting out acting out yeah yeah, 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 right, yeah right yeah totally let's talk about some practical things yeah. so you say eva phrase heading out into the world like that concept itself could trigger some of our more socially anxious listeners right just the thought That's of true. having to head out to work so maybe you could talk about some of the things you talk about to how to kind of get your confidence and kind of getting in touch in with that true self again, as you talk about. Absolutely. So one of the things that I like to kind of set expectations with clients with is that many people will come in and say, okay, I wish I could just like kind of hit pause on my life and <laughs> retreat and like work on my confidence and feel better about myself. And then I could hit play again and go out into the world and live my life. And I always say, that's awesome. And let's do that in the opposite order. Let's have you go out and live your life like before you're confident and your confidence will catch up. And so like a nice analogy I like to use is that of mood and action. Like we often think we have to feel like doing something before we do it. You know, we have to feel inspired before we sit down and write, or we have to feel like, you know, going swimming before we actually go do some laps. And that that's not actually true. If we actually just go and get started, often our mood catches up. We're glad we did it. We're happy we're there. Inspiration strikes as we're kind of going through the motions. And so it's the same thing with confidence. So I like to tell people to start before they're 100% ready, like stretch a little bit, go a little bit outside of your comfort zone. And that will refute the two biggest lies that anxiety tells you. One, is that the worst case scenario is a foregone conclusion and will absolutely happen. And two is that you can't handle things, that you can't handle what life throws at you. And so by getting some experience under their belt, they learn, oh, that wasn't so bad. And oh, I was able to roll with things. And then that builds confidence. And then they're ready for the next thing. So that's one thing I do to set expectations. We talked about giving yourself some structure. And then a third biggie is to try to turn attention inside out. So like we talked about at the beginning, when we're in a socially anxious moment, our attention often turns inward and we start to monitor ourselves, and we start to monitor ourselves for mistakes, especially. And so if we can turn our attention outward and focus on where we are in the moment, so we can focus on the person we're talking to, we can focus on you know, the group around us, the environment around us, we can listen very closely to what the other person is saying, then that frees up a lot of bandwidth and we can fill in that remaining bandwidth with just like natural curiosity, natural interest, our authenticity. And that makes us not only feel better, but in studies, if you ask Confederates who are, are like research assistants who are in, in the study talking to the participants, those research assistants rate the participants as more likable before than people who are kind of inwardly focused. So there's come across better. They rate themselves more authentic. So it's a win-win situation. You feel better and you also come across better by turning your attention outward. That's great. So a lot of this is really getting out of your own head and getting outside yourself. 
Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So should we bust some myths of social anxiety? Sure. A lot of people have this feeling like, you know, I have to sound like the shoulds, you know, like Karen Hornig oh. had talked about this yeah. back in the, like the tyranny of the shoulds is what Karen Hornig called, oh, talk, called it. Such a great phrase. Yeah, I love that. I think that she's really underrated. But, you know, like people, there are some like a lot of oldies but goodies, you know, in the psychoanalytic literature mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. aren't discussed. Yeah. But maybe you could talk a little bit about, yeah, how does this perfectionism hold us back? Sure. Yeah. So perfectionism is a huge driver of oh, social yeah. anxiety. And so, I mean, I can relate to this. Like I, you know, I, after a PhD in clinical psychology and several decades, you know, I'm much more comfortable than I used to be, but definitely I realized that over the years, that perfectionism had really driven a lot of my own anxiety in thinking that like, I, yeah, I had to be entertaining. I had to sound smart. I had to carry the conversation for both of us if I was talking to one other person. And so just the realization that, you know, your social life or, you know, conversation is not like a laser maze, you know, like alarms don't go off if you make one mistake is so helpful. And so I quote Dr. David Burns in the book who wrote the first evidence-based self-help book way back in 1980 for depression. And so he has a chapter in there called Dare to be Average. And I love that phrase. So it, it helps us lower the bar and realize it's okay to pause in conversation. It's okay to lose your train of thought. It's okay to have an awkward moment. It's even okay to you know, spill your drink on somebody. You apologize and you move on. And again, bringing back Kristen Neff, like this common humanity, we're all in this together. And I'm sure that everybody has had drinks spilled on them at some point as well. So to be able to, to dare to be average and not have to perform as it were makes things so much easier. But what if you're intentionally, like, what if you're a grandiose narcissist and you're intentionally pouring drinks on people? Like, that's not okay. That's, 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 that's not another o- problem, yeah, right? Yeah. That, okay. yeah. It's not, it's not <laughs> always okay. <laughs> it's not always, not always okay. okay. For, for our audience, it is okay. okay. I'm imagining not any grandiose narcissists are listening to this. <laughs> okay, good, for, for this audience. Okay, I always ask Kristen F that question, like, she was on my podcast and I was just like, you know, like sometimes some of this language can get too, uh, like, you know, you're perfect the way you are. You don't. Right. And I'm like, eh, right. is that true? Like, yeah, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, there's a common humanity there in the sense that none of us are perfect the way we are. You know, like, do, do you know what I mean? Like, so when we yes. say you're perfect the way you yeah. are, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit because I'm like, you know, speak for yourself. I'm not perfect right. the way I am. I, what? Wait, I, I have as much to work on as anybody else. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I got the same problems. Okay, cool. And then, so what's the myth of hope in a bottle? Oh my gosh. So this is, so this is, this is so common. So folks with social anxiety will drink to make themselves feel better in social situations. And quite honestly, like many people do this. You don't even have to have diagnosable social anxiety or anyway, this is, you know, pre-gaming is a thing. Like people routinely have a drink before they go out to loosen up. They call it liquid courage. And so it's just so common. But then when you have, especially for folks with social anxiety, if they then have a good time or they feel better, then alcohol gets the credit. And so what we want is, we're certainly not, I'm not anti-alcohol, I'm not telling anybody to stop drinking. But what I am saying is that you have that confidence in you, and it's just the inhibition that's getting in the way. And so to try not to give alcohol the credit and to have a drink because you want to, not because you think you have to. Nice. So that's a distinction. Yeah. yeah so much about the shoulds or the have to. You have so to. much about the yeah, shoulds. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I thought of a question I want to ask you. Well, first of all, this is going to drive me crazy until I ask you, how can you do laps without swimming? 
first. This is a good, this is a good question. <laughs> okay. That's one question. Yeah. Because you said earlier, okay. you said some, some of us want to do the swim first before we do the laps. I'm like, don't you need to do that first? Uh, okay. Well, clearly, my brain, my brain no. did one thing and my mouth no, no, did another thing. No. Uh, one of those. So I'm just being but, cheeky. Uh, That's yeah. just me being no cheeky. Worries. That's my real self being cheeky. Very good. And I'm not going to be self-conscious about that now. Okay. Amen. Second of all, I wanted to talk to you about sex differences, gender differences. I think it's interesting to think about in this particular domain because like, it seems from my perspective that most of the audience of people that like are attracted to like Brene Brown's message, for instance, mm. about mm -hmm. vulnerability, mm -hmm. tend to be women. And I wonder True. if maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe what are some unique needs or maybe like being a woman, like growing up in certain environments and kind of being treated a certain mm. way by the world, et cetera, et cetera, that you think might mm. cause that gender difference. Or maybe I'm imagining the gender difference. You can tell me that too. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Mm. No, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. So one thing, so the cover of my book has this woman in a party dress, like hiding behind some balloons in it. So it's this very, it's like got purple lettering. So it's a very feminine cover, but don't let the cover fool you. This is for this is for everybody. And social anxiety disorder, so what I call capital S social anxiety, which is when it gets in the way of living your life or kind of crosses this line into being impairing, um, is it one of the few anxiety disorders that is actually equal opportunity. And so an equal number of men and women suffer from social anxiety disorder. So it's again, this is really for everyone. And so I think that Beyond that, when you talk about anxiety in general, there is, I think, I think the recent stats are like there's a two to one ratio of women to men who are anxious. But I think that a lot of that is driven by self-report and who's willing to say, I am anxious, oh, who shows up for therapy and who shows up to get medication or who, you know, who's even willing to, in their own head, interpret what they're feeling as anxiety. And so I think for a lot of men, anxiety might manifest as irritability or anger and might also come out kind of secondarily as substance abuse. And so I think that even though social anxiety is an equal opportunity already, I think maybe other anxiety disorders and anxiety in general might be closer to 50-50 than we think. That's so interesting. Uh, that point you just made about how a lot of men might have this but not conceptualize it in the same mm -hmm. way as women. Like, I think it's undeniable that women are tend to be more attracted to like Brene Brown's kind of writing mm -hmm. and maybe even yep. yours, but that doesn't say like maybe a lot of more men would be attracted to it if they like identified with it more. As anxiety. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. You're just having me think of that now. So thank you for that elucidation. I really sure. appreciate that. I want to be respectful of your time. And I just have one last question. Of course. About no. the... Um, like, oh, cool. Yeah, but I want to be respectful. I want to be, <laughs> you know, you talk about the building blocks of, be, quote, beautiful friendship. I want some beautiful mm. friendships. I'm down with uh, that. So why are those building blocks maybe not what we think they are? Sure. So for folks with, who are socially anxious or more prone to social anxiety, so we tend to hold things close to the vest. We tend to not really talk about ourselves, not reveal much. And that's actually a mistake. And so because relationships, intimacy, you know, not necessarily sexual intimacy, but just getting to know another person is, and this Elaine Aaron talks about this, is gradual and reciprocal. And so that means revealing a little bit about what you think and do and feel. And then you will likely get back something about what the other person thinks and does and feels. And it doesn't have to be a confession. It doesn't have to be your deepest, darkest secret. It doesn't have to be your life story. You know, some, talking about something as simple as the weather can be 
a disclosure. You can say like, oh, I'm so glad it's raining today because I find the gray skies really soothing. Or, you know, oh, it's finally sunny. I'm so glad that I've been getting, I've totally been having cabin fever. That's a disclosure. That's talking about yourself, even though technically you're still talking about the weather. And so to talk about oneself is part of building a friendship. Another thing is to just keep showing up that it takes on average six to eight conversations, like real conversations, not just, hey, 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 before someone considers you a friend. And so is that a right? lot of folks, yeah, yeah. I and always so, stop at five and I wondered something was wrong with me. Exactly. You figured it out. So what happens is that because it's driven by perfectionism, a lot of folks with social anxiety go into a social situation and expect to connect instantly with a new, with a potential new friend, like with a stranger, or they expect to go to an event and like walk out arm in arm with, you know, a new buddy. And that doesn't happen. And so what we have to do is to have repetition, to keep showing up over and over. And that means that the places where you want to meet people are where you see the same people over and over, like this, what I call like the steady drumbeat of the same faces. So like meetups where the crowd changes every time are actually is actually not a good place. Right. But if you if you go to a dog park, you know, with your dog at, you know, and the same people are there every morning, that's perfect. Or if you drop off your kid at school and the same parents are there, that's perfect. Things like that where you see the same people over and over. Would it be creepy for me to go to a dog park even though I don't have a dog, but I just want to make friends? Borderline creepy. You yeah. Have an, it would be creepier if you had an invisible dog or claim to do that. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell them that I have an invisible one. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Sorted. Yeah. Right, right. But I think the most important thing to, for making friends is that a lot of again, people who are socially anxious think they have to project this image of being confident and competent and like that that is what people are looking for. But that's not actually true. What people are looking for in a potential friend is warmth, is simply being yeah. kind and trustworthy and loyal. And you don't have to be impressive and you don't even have to be confident. You just have to be nice. And so that's a really important kind of thing to get one's mind around uh, when we think about making friends. That's so such a good repetition, point. disclosure, be nice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And being too overconfident anyway backfires. Mm-hmm. People don't want to be friends with people who. Right. Think they right. just rode in on a high horse, right? Is that a, is that a yeah. metaphor? I'm bad with yeah. metaphors, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll take. Yeah. So yeah, could people, people want to be friends with people who are human, not superhuman? Right. What you said. <laughs> cool. Whether or not they're on a horse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Forget the horse thing. Or yeah. Whether or not they came to the dog park riding a horse. There you go. I don't know. Anyway, hey, thank you so much for the chat. This was delightful, and I wish your book all the best. You and the book all the best. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It was a delight. Delight for me too. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.